You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. We'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can reach in the seats in front of you and turn to page 848 so that you can arrive at the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. And I think if you arrive there and you see what the next chapter is, you can almost want us to skip the paragraphs that we are studying this morning and get to chapter 13. Chapter 13, where Jesus explains to his disciples the signs of the end times. When will the end occur? And I don't know about you, but I look at global pandemics. I look at social unrest. I look at unrighteous presidents invading other countries. And I, I have a sense that Mark 13 might be present and not future. And yet, we do not want to skip over what God has entrusted to us this morning. Some of you have read the email that I sent out yesterday. We will be discussing some of the opportunities we have to contribute to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine and in Eastern Europe, not only through giving of special offerings, but also through prayer. And we will do that at the end of the service. But I sense that before we get there and look at the horizontal political events that are going on, we would do well to sink our minds deeply into the timeless truths of God's word. Amen. So Mark chapter 12, we continue our study of the gospel of Mark and the vistas of Christ that Mark provides. I'll begin reading in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength and all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all our heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after this, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation." And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched people 
putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put two copper, small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had, all she had to live on. This is a rather long passage, and really there's three different scenes. And so the question asked, what is the central theme that the Holy Spirit intended for this paragraph? What did Mark intend his original audience to understand? And then once we get that, how do we apply it to our 21st century modern relevance? I think the topic that both Mark and the Holy Spirit intended was to us to center our minds on the topic of love. Just a couple weeks ago, in fact, two weeks from this coming Monday, we celebrated the Day of Love. I don't know, some of you might be rolling your eyes thinking, I thought we survived this. I was doing a lot of retrospective thinking, and I realized that since I started dating my wife, Sally, we have celebrated 28 Valentine's Days. And what's interesting, as you approach 50, a lot of your peers begin to have a common understanding of what Valentine's Day is, and that is it's a conspiracy of the greeting card companies. But let me just give a side note and a free bit of advice for you men. Don't ever punt on Valentine's Day. End of commercial, take that and apply it. But it's interesting that no sooner has New New Year's Day faded into our memory that all of a sudden you walk into retail locations and you are immediately confronted with the topic of love. And of course, love comes in pink and red colors. Of course, love is expressed through chocolates and flowers and extravagant dinner plans. But the question remains, what is love? It's an important question to ask, and the important answer to this question should be the one who actually created love. And so what we see in this passage is an opportunity to see what does the author of love expect when it comes to his followers and love. In fact, you can see the big idea. The kind of love that Christ expects of his followers reveals where our treasure is. And we will see four requirements of Christ's expectations of love from his followers that will reveal where our treasure is. Number one, love requires all in. Love requires all in. Remember where we were last week? There were Sadducees that came to Jesus, and we learned that in their questions, in their using of religion, they were actually demonstrating that their religion was a facade. It sure looked good on the outside. It sure looked one way on the outside, but the fact is, is that what was portrayed on the outside was actually not what was in on the inside. And so there was a gentleman that was listening to the debate. It says in verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing. 
Remember, the scribes were the professional theologians. These were the experts on the scriptures, not just in what the scriptures said, but also what the scriptures meant. The scribes usually aligned with the Pharisees and with the crowds, and so they were often in opposition to the Sadducees. And so this scribe heard the debate, heard Jesus' response to the Sadducees, and look at what it says. He saw that Jesus had answered them well. And so the scribe then asks a question that we often do. Often we ask questions about what was the greatest? Who was the greatest athlete of our day what was the greatest commercial from the 80s i'm dating myself what was the greatest power love ballad of course it had to involve peter satara but we ask questions what is the greatest and this was a common question that would often reveal the expertise of a rabbi And so a rabbi's response to this question would reveal their level of expertise. And so this scribe asks the question, which commandment, verse 28, is the most important of them all? Now, when I'm reading scripture and I read commandments, I would expect Jesus to have turned the scribe back to Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, wouldn't you? I mean, what is the greatest commandment of all? I would have expected him to draw from Exodus chapter 20. Well, that's not what Jesus does. The rabbis of Jesus' day believed that there were 613 commandments in the first five books of the Bible. 613. And then you add to that the tradition of the elders. And Jesus had a lot of commandments from which to choose. But he goes to a passage that was well known for the Jews of his day, as well as the Jews of our day. He goes to Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. You can turn there, but it's actually almost quoted word by word here in Mark. It's known as the Shema. It's from the Hebrew word Shema, which means to hear. And so the Hebrew Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel. Listen up, Israel. What's about to follow makes you as a nation distinct. In fact, it's interesting. When I traveled to Israel in 2017, I started noticing these cigarette-sized rolls of paper outside of every hotel room. And I asked our tour guide, what are those cigarette-sized rolls of paper? And he said, shh, shh, shh. They're not cigarettes. He says, if you were to open one of those, it would have, among other passages, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel. But now listen, again, when we see the New Testament quote from the Old Testament, they do not extract that citation from the context of that passage. And so let's think about the context of Deuteronomy 6, 4. Deuteronomy is the second time that Moses gives the law to the Jews. And what's interesting about that is they are right before the promised land. But but Moses knows that the Lord had told him and his generation that they would not enter into the promised land. Because of their rebellion, 
Because of Moses' disobedience of God when he said, speak to the rock, and yet Moses struck the rock, God said to Moses and to that generation that rejected the two spies that they would not enter the promised land. And so this is a very sobering point in Israel's past. And Moses has assembled the people one last time and he's going back through the commandments and he's saying, listen, you young generation, as you go in and your fathers and your grandparents are not with you, as the mature generation will die and you will head in, these are very important instructions to give to you. And he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Now, this is significant. You can write down Numbers chapter 33 and verse 4. The 10 plagues in Egypt are are said in Numbers 33, 4 to have been God's attempt and successful one at that to actually defeat the gods of Egypt. We don't have time to dig into this. If you want to dig into this more for your own study, you can grab a book called The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser, H-E-I-S-E-R. Michael Heiser does an amazing job going into scriptures that we often turn past and we say, I don't understand that. I'll leave that up to the scholars. I was actually reading a passage this morning. Isn't it amazing? If you read the Bible on a daily basis, it's fascinating to me how he puts that word that you have read, especially in the morning if you do that, and somehow during the day something comes up that ties into what you read. I read Deuteronomy 32 this morning. Deuteronomy 32 verse 8 says that God gave to the nations the inheritance of the sons of God, but to one nation he gave the God. Isn't that interesting? And so this made Israel, ethnic Israel, distinct from all the other nations. All the other nations had lower G gods that were their inheritance. But there was one ethnicity that had the God, the God of gods, God Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth as their God. And guess what? They didn't need multiple gods. They needed the one God. So do you see why this is a significant statement? Here, O Israel, the Lord, your God, is one God. That is the statement. What's interesting, though, about this is what follows. The statement is, the Lord your God is one God. He is the God. He is the ultimate God. He is the God above all gods. There are powerful beings in the universe, powerful beings that that our greatest weapons, our, our greatest strategies, our greatest military might pales in comparison to these beings, and yet there is one God above all of these beings, above all powers, above all presidents, above all militaries, and that is Yahweh. And so once we grasp that, there's an expected response Look at what Jesus says, verse 30, you shall love the Lord. After years of planning and promotion on September 8th, 1974, at 3.36 p.m., the great daredevil, Evil Knievel, sat in his X-2 rocket. 
And what was about to happen was that he was going to be shot up into the air in an attempt to cross five football fields lengths over the Snake River Valley. And you can go out to YouTube and see this video and you see his X2 rocket ascend into the heavens and it was with great power and with great speed and all of a sudden a parachute comes out and the X2 rocket makes it its way slowly to the valley of the Snake River. Now there's much dispute as to whether or not he pulled that parachute or whether or not it was a malfunction, but here's the point, there was a parachute. Now, now having a parachute for Evil Knievel and the X-2 rocket was appropriate because this was a stunt. There was great risk associated with it. And so they calculated that risk. They understood the value of life. And so they installed a parachute on this rocket and somehow it was pulled and he lived. But friends, I think we often approach God with parachutes. So that if what's asked of us is too much, if he doesn't live up to our expectations, if the world events and circumstances somehow do not make sense to us, we are tempted to want to pull a parachute or even have a parachute at all. But what Jesus says is that when it comes to being a follower of him, listen, hear, O Christian, the Lord our God is one, and we are to love him. But how? There's a a preposition here that is very important, and the ESV translates it with, and I think that's valuable, but it's actually an interesting preposition that means the instrument or the source with the emphasis on the result. What I mean by that is that we are to love our God from our hearts, from our minds, from our strength. That is the instrument. So what Jesus is saying here is a quote I'll ask the team to put up on the screen. And that is these definitions and these descriptions of heart, soul, mind, and strength means that it describes all you are and all you do. These are not intended to be separated out to say, well, sometimes I love him with my heart and sometimes with my soul and sometimes with my strength and sometimes with my mind. All Jesus and the author of Deuteronomy are doing is saying, if you're going to love God appropriately, you are all in. And the one way we can move past just simply realizing that God is one is to consider what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Oh, friend, the epicenter of God's character, the, the crossroads where all of God's character was most vividly on display is the cross. Consider this, 1 Peter 3.18, Jesus, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous. Consider Romans 5.10, that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. When we truly see who God is, when we truly see what he has done for us through the cross, our only appropriate response is to be all in. And one of the best ways we can tell whether or not we are all in is the next commandment that Jesus said. Basically, Jesus gives a twofer. The scribe asks for what is the greatest commandment, and Jesus says, well, it starts with this, but the second, verse 31 
is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. One of the greatest ways you can tell whether or not you are all in in loving God is how you treat others. And listen, it's not just how you treat others. It's not just how you speak to others. It's also how you think about others. Ow. Because we're fine with having God focus on how we treat others because we can put on the face, can't we? We're even fine with God looking at how we speak to others because we can say the nice things, but in our hearts feel differently. But when Jesus says we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, it is the same tale, it is the same expectation as the love we are supposed to have for him, and that is we are all in. He quotes Leviticus 19.18. And think about the context of Leviticus 19. This is the way that the Jews were supposed to care for those around them. Leviticus 19, verse 10, they were to care for those in need. Verse 11, they were not to steal from them. Verse 11, they were not to lie to them. Verse 14, they were to be fair in business. Verse 15, they were to deal justly with all. Verse 16, they were not to slander others. Verse 17, they were not to harbor hatred. Verse 17, they were to courageously rebuke the other person for their own good. Let's just pause right there and remember that. When we confront somebody else, it's not to prove ourselves right. When we confront somebody else, it's not to embarrass them in front of others, but we are to confront them. And Leviticus 19 says we are to confront them for their own good, to make sure they're aligned with their God, to make sure they are in right relationship with their God. Leviticus 19, 18, we are not to take revenge against our neighbors. Leviticus 19, verse 10, there is to be no discrimination in our kindness toward others, to the poor, to the sojourner, and to our brothers. And yet Jesus takes this a step further, doesn't he? You can write down Philippians 2, 1 through 10. Jesus had the mind that was set on others being better than himself. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus calls his disciples to love one another, to to love our brothers and sisters. And by our love toward our brothers and sisters, people will know that we are his disciples. Beloved, God's expectations of love from his followers is that we're all in. Number two, Christ's love requires abdication. It requires abdication. Verse 32, the scribe, the theological professional says, you are right, teacher. I mean, this is the expert. This guy had PhD, D, 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 D. This was the expert on the theology of scripture. And he says to this common rabbi, or so he thinks, you are right, teacher. And he unpacks what Jesus had just said, and he says, all of this that you have just said, look at this interesting phrase. Isn't this one that we would typically skip over? Verse 33, that these answers that you had given is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What does that mean? What it means is that the scribe realized 
that what's most important is what's going on in our hearts. What the scribe realizes is that all of those Levitical laws, have you ever read through Leviticus and seen how many bulls were supposed to be killed? How many goats, how many sheep, what they were supposed to do with their entrails and their livers and their kidneys and the blood, and the blood, and the blood. You read through that and you begin to understand that God had great expectation with all of these ceremonies that it would reflect their hearts. But what happened is generation after generation settled into the rut of religion just like we do today or at least are tempted to do. And the scribe realizes and acknowledges it's not about the religion. It's about the relationship. It's about the value that we place in our hearts on our God and that all of the blood and all of the service attending and all of the tithes and offerings and all of our sacrifices are the overflow of what's going on in our heart. Teacher, you have answered right. Now the next words, God used sovereignly and providentially in a man named John Wesley whom Ben quoted a couple weeks ago, to move him from religion to relationship. John Wesley, who grew up in the home of a minister, whose mom was the great Susanna, who raised 19 kids, nine of whom died early in their lives. He was a minister. He was a missionary. At 35 years old, he opened the pages of Scripture to this very text, and he read these words in verse 34. When Jesus saw that the scribe had answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, now what's significant about that statement is that he's not in yet. Do you feel the weight of what I just said? That means that you can be an expert on theology. You can have all the right answers. You can be teaching kids Sunday school. You can be a small group leader, but you can be in a place where Jesus would say to you, you're not far, but you're not there yet. On December 10th, 1936, Edward VIII, King of England, signed a document that when he was finished, removed his title as king, and he then became the Duke of Windsor. What he did in signing that document is abdicate his claim to the throne as king of England. Now, he had his reasons, and you can read about those in Google or Wikipedia, But in that very moment, he moved from people bowing to him as king of England to being one of several dukes. He abdicated his throne, and in that signature, a monarchy changed. And what's significant about this statement from Jesus is the acknowledgement that if you are going to be in, a monarchy has to change. In the Gospel of Mark, we see an amazed crowd constantly. We see enraged religious leaders. We see confused disciples. 
And Jesus is constantly reminding them that what makes you a disciple is faith. And here's a quote I'll ask the team to put on the screen. Faith begins with abdication. Friends, we are are born, we are conceived with having someone on the throne of our lives, and that someone is us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 describes this most vividly, that we were dead in our trespasses. We were following after our own lusts, our own desires. We are on the throne of our spiritual lives at conception. We don't have to wait till we're old enough to be able to know how to sin. At conception, Psalm 51 says, we are sinners. And so here's a reminder. I would ask you to write these three down because these three important reminders will alert you to whether or not you sit on the throne of your spiritual life. Number one, acknowledge the truth is not enough. Acknowledge that truth is not enough. What I mean by that is that it was not enough for the scribe to acknowledge truth. Acknowledging truth is not enough. In fact, you can write down James 2.19, even the demons acknowledge truth. Even the demons hear this very verse. In fact, the demons hear that the Lord is one and they say, yes, that is true, but that's not enough. Acknowledging the truth is not enough. Number two, it is a journey. The gospel is a journey. Listen, that is both important for the person who is considering the gospel, but listen, Christian, that's important for us to remember when we have unsaved loved ones and friends. Very rarely does someone go from, I have no idea who Jesus is, to hearing about Jesus for the first time, to immediately surrendering their life to Christ. It does happen in glory to God. But there's a reason why 1 Timothy 6 provides three different descriptors of processes that take a long time. Soldiering, athletics, agriculture. Because the gospel is a journey. That's why Jesus says here, you're, you're not far off. But then number three, faith is abdication. It is abdication. It requires a new monarch. In fact, that's what Mark 1, 15, if you remember that, you can actually flip back. Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. There is a kingdom with a king and the way that you surrender and abdicate your own throne is to repent and believe the gospel. So my question to you, friend, is, have you signed that letter of abdication? Because the love that Christ expects, the love that Christ requires of his followers is not a both and when it comes to the monarchy. He requires all in, and that's what he says to this theological expert. You are not far off, but friend, you must surrender. Look at how the crowd responds In verse 34, no one dared to ask him any more questions. 
The love that Jesus expects and requires requires abdication. Number three, love requires accuracy. Love requires accuracy. This is an interesting transaction. Verse 35, Jesus taught in the temple, which that in and of itself is significant. The very people who are plotting against his life would have been present in the temple, and yet he continues to teach. And he said, how can the scribes, how can the theological experts say that the Christ is the son of David? And they did, and and then they were right about this. See, again, the the scribes didn't just know the facts. They, They actually could connect the dots, and they connected the dots to understand that Messiah is the son of David. Let me give you some scriptures that they would have used. They'll put these up on the screen, I believe. 2 Samuel 7, 12. This is the Davidic covenant. The Lord says to David, from your offspring I will produce a kingdom. Verse 13 of 2 Samuel 7, that kingdom will last forever. Verse 14, that that, that king that will come from your line will be my son, the son of God. So they understood that that promised one, the Messiah, would be a son of David. But then you can also write down Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. There will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's father, a, a branch And then that theme of branch would continue in Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. This would be the branch of David. And then Ezekiel 34, 23 through 24, that branch, that servant of David will be a single shepherd and will shepherd my flock. So the the, the theology experts would have connected these dots and would have declared in Jesus' day that the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David. And they were right in that. Then you add to that Psalms, like Psalm 2, verse 1, that the nations rage and plot in vain. The kings assemble against the Lord, against his anointed. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs because he has placed his king on Zion. Verse 7, he will be my son. Verse 8, the nations will be given to my son as his inheritance. Back in Mark chapter 10, verse 47, blind Bartimaeus declared Jesus was the son of David. The crowds in chapter 11, verse 10, says the kingdom of David is at hand. And so Jesus asks, look at verse 35, how can the scribes say? Would you circle how and write out to the side in what sense? That's important for us to be able to understand. Jesus isn't just saying, how is it possible? What he's saying, in what sense? So what he's asking of the crowds and the religious leaders is explain the theology of this. In, In what sense is the Messiah, the son of David, he's wanting to see if they're connecting the dots to the point where it reflects their love. And so he goes to the most quoted verse in the New Testament, Psalm 110, in verse 1. My wife and I, along with the Salts, uh, Joel and Mindy Salts, we lead a parenting small group, and this has been so humbling. Wouldn't you think that by the time you have teenagers that you would be able to say to these young parents that have little babies, we have it all figured out. But both by our very testimony as well as the questions that they ask, we are reminded constantly, we still don't have it figured out. 
But what we do have is we have a model from Scripture. And that model reminds us that when kids are, are really little and they're very uh, not possible, it's not possible for them to intellectually process, as a parent, you just simply tell them what they're supposed to do, and that's the expectation. But then as kids begin to develop their intellect, you want to move from just do it because I said to explaining why. Because in explaining why, it's not just to point to your authority, it's to point them to the gospel. So when we spanked our kids, when we put them in time out, we weren't just teaching them, you obey us because we're the parents. What we're teaching them is you obey because of the gospel. And you're hoping that they get to a point where they say, I can't do this on my own because that's when they realize, oh, I need someone and something outside of myself, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? But even as they get beyond that point, what we're trying to do is we're trying to teach our teenagers who are getting ready to go out into the great unknown, into the great world that is before them with an accurate understanding of God's expectations, God's designs, God's standards. In fact, I was having this conversation with uh, my daughter who's a junior. And we were talking about what is it going to be like when she goes off to college and what is it going to be like when you have teachers and professors that don't hold to God's standards. And I said, what, what's happening is you're moving from what you believe and knowing what you believe to moving to a place of why you believe it. And listen, the why is not because the parents told her. The why is not because she's a terrell. The why is not because she's a Christian. The why is because God is our king. The why is because he spoke this all into existence. The why is because he sent his son to die for me, a sinner and an enemy of him. And that's the why. And see, when we get to that place, that's what Hebrews 9 and 10 is all about, is all of these sacrifices and the torn veil and all of that gets us to a place, of course we want to assemble with other believers. Of course we want to stir up love and good works with one another. Of course we want to do because we love. And what Jesus is driving at is, do you understand who this Messiah actually is? Would you turn over to Psalm 110, please? Accuracy is important when it comes to the expectation of love. Psalm 110, verse 1, the inscription above verse 1 says that this is a psalm of David. This is important, especially for the context of Mark chapter 12. And there we see in verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What's interesting about this is that it is a psalm of David. David had the role in Israel as what? The king. In fact, would you write out to the side of Psalm 110, verse 1, king. There we see very simply that the king is identifying someone else as his Lord. And if the king is recognizing someone else as his Lord, then that is a king who is superior. You see, I'm emphasizing king. That's important. But then before we go back to Mark chapter 12, it's also important to see the context of Psalm 110, which Jesus would have assumed that the scribes would have known. Look down at verse 4, would you please? 
the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, the Lord in verse 1, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Hmm. Would you write it out to the side there? Priest. And then as we go back to Mark chapter 12, we see that Jesus says in verse 36, David himself in the Holy Spirit, which means he's declaring the word of the Lord, which means David is acting as a what? A prophet. Would you write out to the side of verse 36? Prophet. And now we see what Jesus is getting at with the scribes. Is he's telling the scribes, do you not understand that this Messiah is not just king? They wanted him to be political king. They wanted him to be able to free them of the oppression of Rome, and all they cared about was their own comfort. All they cared about was their own control. All they cared about was their own status. And the fact is, is that Messiah is more than just king. He is prophet, priest, and king. And in that, he fulfills everything that Adam and Israel and even the church fails to fulfill. He is prophet, priest, and king. He is Messiah. He is the only one who can redeem And so what Jesus is saying to the scribes is, yes, you know the scripture. In fact, you even know it well enough to know that the Christ is the son of David. But do you understand that this Messiah is prophet, priest, and king, and therefore deserving and worthy of your worship? Oh, beloved, let's remember that the love and the expectation that Christ has of his followers requires accuracy do you love the jesus of scripture for how he defines himself or do you love him for how you have defined your expectation love requires accuracy but number four love requires affection and by affection i mean a strong constant regard and dedication The love that Jesus expects of his followers is a love that requires affection. And there are three different groups that we find here in verses 38 through 44. The first one are the scribes. Jesus, in his teaching, verse 38, says, beware of the scribes. That's an interesting statement. In fact, that would have blown the minds of the crowds listening. Beware of the theological experts. Beware of the ones that we come to for the answers in scriptures. Beware of them. Why, Jesus? Well, he explains that. Look at this. They like to walk around in long robes. The long robes were uniforms that would have set them apart from the other common crowd. They like the greetings of doctor and rabbi. They have the best seats in the synagogue. They enjoy the places of honor. It says they devour widows' houses. That's going to be an important context when we get down to the next paragraph. For a pretense, they make long prayers, not because they have a lot that they need of the Lord, because instead they have a lot that they want the people to know about them. You can write down Galatians 6, 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. 
And listen, there are plenty of people that will spend decades being just like these scribes. There are plenty of pastors, tragically, who have large ministries. They have great followings. But they're doing so for themselves and not for Christ. And and Jesus says here, they will receive the greater condemnation. But here these scribes, here these religious leaders are going to be in the treasury. We see in verse 41 that Jesus sits down opposite the treasury and watches as the people put money in the offering box. The offering box was 13 shofar ram's horns. And these would be hollowed out. And they would be sitting up and people would drop their coins in there and they would make rattles and, and people could know how much money people were putting in. And so Jesus sits opposite of these ram's horns and he's listening and he's watching people drop their coins and he's watching the scribes do that. He's watching the religious leaders do that. But he's also watching, look at this group in verse 41, many rich people putting in long sums. Ting, 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 ting. And he's watching them do this. But then he notices, verse 42, a poor widow she comes and puts in two small copper coins which make a penny. This is one sixty-fourth of a day's wage for a laborer. This is nothing. But she drops those in and Jesus comments on these three groups. He says in verse 43, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. This has been very misunderstood. This has caused some people to say that we need to sell everything that we have and give it to the poor or give it to the church. But there's something more that Jesus is saying here. Look at verse 44. They all contributed out of their abundance. The wealthy people, the the giving, the offering was simply a line item on their budget. Maybe some of you fall into that category. Others enjoy seeing the big number on the letter that gets sent to you in February for your taxes. Others enjoy being able to say to the IRS, look at how much we gave to the church. But what Jesus says about this woman is that she has put in everything that she had. Now, I don't think what Jesus is saying here is that she put in everything, so now she has nothing to live on. In fact, Paul condemns that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Jesus would not commend someone for giving to the church and then having nothing to live on. What Jesus commends her for is that she's giving out of her money that she uses to live, which means she's sacrificing. This means that she is not enslaved to the mighty dollar. I found this fascinating, and I commend this to you, six points to evaluate to see whether or not you have evidence of financial bondage. Number one, do you have faith in material more than you have in God? In other words, if you woke up tomorrow morning and all of your investments were brought to zero, if you found out tomorrow that you failed to pay your mortgage and you must declare bankruptcy, would that devastate you and would your life change as you know it? 
or do you have faith in God? Number two, do you have a burning desire to get rich? Are the decisions you make for your careers or the decisions you make for your budgets or the decisions you make for the choices that you make in life motivated by gaining wealth? Number three, are you willing to compromise the Christian ethic or fail a moral obligation for the sake of possessions or money? Number four, do you fail to invest in the future? Now I know there are hard times, but if you have the means to do it, are you investing in your future or are you living for the here and now? Number five, do you force your wife to work in order to provide basic needs? Now what this means is, are you so invested in a quality of life and the toys and the bells and whistles that life has to offer you that your wife must work in order to provide for basic needs? Number six, do you give from a willing and cheerful heart or do you give out of duty? Jesus affirms that this widow, in her sacrifice of giving to the Lord, reveals an affection. She's doing this not out of duty. She's not doing this to be praised by man. She is doing this because she values the Lord her God who is one so highly that she is willing to give as an expression of worship even though it hurts.